a lot of people, they really want that care. They want to be handled with care when they're traveling. Traveling will never return to the way it was pre-COVID. It just will not. I mean, the, the pandemic obviously significantly impacted the world. And I say to people like, yeah, the hospitality industry is not immune to having issues with pilots, flight attendants, hotel representatives, car rental people. I mean, come on. It's like, so I say to people all the time, you go in your neighborhood, I'm still seeing help wanted signs, hiring Mm -hmm. here, 20 bucks an hour, everywhere. In the hospitality industry and hotels, airlines, airports, that's all affected. Yeah. And so I would say like, be kind, just, just relax and be nice because everybody's still trying to figure this out. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. I found that travel is one of the best ways to expand our mental horizons and see ourselves and our native home in a new light. In the olden days, A travel agent was an essential partner in such adventures, for only they had the information and tools needed to make hotel, airline, and other arrangements, especially if you were going overseas. Nowadays, of course, we can do a lot of this ourselves via apps and online services, and you might think that this would have killed the travel agent industry. Not so, as today's guest will tell us. Elizabeth Blount McCormick is more than a travel agent. She's a travel designer. That's a new term to me, and my summary of what it means is that she goes beyond the mere mechanics of booking flights and hotels and digs into why you're traveling and what will make the experience everything you're looking for. Like many of us, she did not set out to be a travel designer. We'll talk about her past to this niche, her experiences as a young black female business owner, and much, much more. So fasten your seatbelt for a really fun trip. So I'm delighted to have a a friend and fellow Columbusite with me on the podcast today, Elizabeth Blount McCormick, born and raised in this fair city, if I know the story right, in the neighborhood called Bexley. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) I'd love you to tell me a bit about what it was like growing up in Bexley back in the... You'll have to tell me about when that was, 80s? Yeah, that's right, in the 80s, yes. Okay, and I'm also interested to learn some things about your parents and your grandparents because, you know, you're African-American, and I imagine in the time frame of your parents and certainly your grandparents, you know, this was a segregated country. Mm -hmm. You've lived the post, supposedly post-segregation America, so 
that thread of stories you hear and imprints you get and legacies that your earlier generations leave on you is something I think is really fascinating. So who was Elizabeth Blount when she was five years old? Let's see, a couple of things. I mean, my, my father, he was an ophthalmologist here in town in Columbus. And my mom really just became involved in the community and helped him build his practice. And so it's something that I saw as a kid, right? I saw my parents working together and their partnership and, you know, just growing his practice. And then she grew, obviously, and developed her leadership skills as well. But growing up in Bexley was a little challenging because there weren't many Black families there. And we definitely, unfortunately, experienced racism. We had some interesting things happen. And even my father, he would drive over to pick up food for us from the Bexley Monk. It's now, it doesn't exist anymore. But a great restaurant that you stable, see. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Go to place. That's right. And I'll never forget, he went over there to pick up our dinner and he was driving a Mercedes convertible. He had his sport coat on. He had just left the office to pick up the meal that my mom ordered. And a police officer stopped him and said, what are you doing here? My dad's like, I'm going to pick up the meal that my wife ordered where I'm picking up dinner. We have a takeout order. Asked him what his name was. And he said, my name is Dr. Blount. And from that, the officer said, well, I've heard that name before, so you should be okay. So the, the point is of that story is that happened so many times during my life and growing up. And my parents always made sure that we knew who we are and that we spent a lot of time with different people I grew up in really a privileged environment. I can say that, right? It was privileged. I mean, we, we had access to a lot of different things and opportunities and I, I'm fortunate and I know that, but we still, we couldn't escape racism. You didn't grow up in heaven. <laughs> Correct, right. <laughs> and Bexley, I mean, my mom is still in the house that we grew up in. Um, my father, he passed away. It'll be 17 years um, ago in May. So she's still in the house I grew up in and we spend time over there for the holidays. We're looking forward to doing that. But there were just different pieces and parts of things that happened. And, and my first real like interaction with racism happened when I was in sixth grade. And it's just kind of an really? important story. Yeah, I was, yeah. there was a, a classmate of mine who, who I'd helped. He had a learning disability. And so I was helping him with his schoolwork or whatever. And at the time when you can go outside because of the rain, we were playing Foursquare in this classroom, which is really funny. So we're playing Foursquare. Yeah. And all of my friends that I'd grown up with, they were taunting him and saying, we're going to tell David, we're going to tell us what you said. We're going to tell her what you said. And I, and I thought, well, what's happening? These are my friends. I grew up with them since I was like five years old at the time, we're like 11 or 12. And they said that David, they're like, get Elizabeth out. If you don't, we're going to tell her what you said. Basically what he said is I would never, I don't like Elizabeth. He was being teased that he liked me because he would never date a neighbor. And so from that, right. And I had always known I was black and I was proud of that. But from that, my parents, they invited all of our, all of the parents um, of every person who was in the two sixth grade classes at Maryland Avenue Elementary School and brought them all over to our house and had a conversation about that. Like, this is being taught someplace. Wow. This is a problem. Yeah. So, so seeing all of that growing up, that's how I was raised, right? So if there's yeah. something that happens that isn't, that isn't right, then you've got to address that. But I always watch my parents just really advocate and they were so strong um, and really st stood up for what was wrong and stood up for what yeah. was right. If, if things were wrong, they would just call it out. So that's how I was raised. So my sister and I, we went to Bexley. I went there first through eighth grade, my sister first through sixth grade. Then we went over to the Wellington school that my parents decided to move us to the private school at the same time. Uh, I, middle school was really hard for me. I just was a 
tough time. I think middle school is hard for a lot of people. I mean, these three elementary schools are feeding to a middle school and it was just different. Socially hard, academically hard, all of the above? Socially hard. Academically, I was doing fine. Now, I'm not a great test taker. And so my, and I'm just, I never have been a good standardized test taker. And so there were things that were happening. So a teacher and one of my eighth grade teachers said to my mom, well, her third grade test scores, you know, weren't great. So this is probably why she isn't doing well. And so my parents were like, we're not doing that. So fortunately, they were able to send us to the Wellington School where we both exceeded and excelled and did really well. And being different was embraced and celebrated. And it was phenomenal. Were you and your sister... You were certainly one of the very few African-Americans at Bexley School. Were you the only or were there a couple more? There were a couple others, but not many. You had a more diverse student population at Wellington? Yes. I had more Black students in my class at Wellington than I did at Bexley. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. I, of course, experienced a touch of that growing up and going into fields that were predominantly male and for many years being the only woman or one of two, and and slowly seeing that get a little better. But it has to be a bit similar to what I've experienced, but Mm -hmm. different because of the overlay. There's a different overlay about why women shouldn't be here than there is about why racial minorities don't fit or are odd. (laughs) Right. You've got both, right? You're (laughs) a young black woman. Can you tease any of that apart? Are there any insights there from your experience navigating both of those? That's a really good question. I mean, the thing is, is that it is like a double whammy. So if I walk into a room and oftentimes I'm the only black person in the room, which I'm used to that, but I just, I always think about things. Where am I going? What's happening? I mean, it's the first thing I know that when I walk in, people know she's black, right? And so with that there, of course, there comes like stereotypes and prejudices that exist from maybe experiences people have had with other black people or people of color or just the things they've written that are just a right. cartoon. Yep. Correct. Or the things they've heard or heard, hearing jokes and things like that. So it's just something, I mean, and, and you get this, Kathy, I mean, as a woman, like, okay, so we have to be better, right. And, and more efficient. And it's just excellence is just where we have to operate. And you've got to toe this interesting line between yes. being you know, strong and appropriately assertive of who you are and what you know, and right. you know, not being too threatening to them. <laughs> She's just uppity, man. She's just uppity. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. You're yeah, right. Yeah. There's a way to do it. There's an art to it, right? Yeah. And to, to, to continue to be successful and to grow and advance. So I, I definitely think about that a lot. Um, and of course, we can't be threatening. You know, strong women, they have Right. This whole thing. I mean, even not to get political, but I mean, Hillary Clinton, right? I mean, she was so brilliant and bright. And just, right. so we deal with that. Yep. It gets binned into pushy, bossy. Who does she think she yes. is? Exactly. Do you remember what felt different to you about being in Wellington where you and your sister were not close to the only Black students? I mean, how, how did that help you feel or interact socially? Well, well, a couple of things. I mean, one thing that my, my parents did, we were in a black social group called Jack and Jill. And it's actually a, a international, well, national organization. I think they have um, chapters in um, Puerto Rico as well. So Jack and Jill, the reason Jack and Jill was started is because when social clubs were first kind of established, black people were not allowed to go. And so this group was made up of doctors, lawyers, uh, CEOs, judges. And, and so I had so many friends that were at Worthington or Academy or CSG that were just like me. And right. so I saw, I had a lot of black friends 
because of that group, right? And it's right. interesting because a lot of us, and so we could all relate, just was nice to be around people where we could just be and I didn't have to be the only black girl or whatever in that certain situation. So that was incredibly helpful just to have that support system. And then that network then is it's just, it, it's kind of funny how it comes back full circle because I do a lot of travel for the different regions in the US. Isn't that funny? So for it's Jack like, and Jill. and I'm doing that. Yeah, for Jack and Jill. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 And there are other black groups too that people like there's the links incorporated it's a women's group my mom was in that my father was in boule which is a men's group so there are all these different groups that exist for black professionals my dad was in the nma national medical association so we had our like our own network right in relationships that we're able to establish that actually carried on when i went to spell in college but at wellington they really celebrated your individualism and so the story that I have to tell is that when I was a senior, I was a president of the Black History Club. And the entire month, we had a number of different activities. We had a play. We brought in um, like a two or three star general that my dad knew, a black general who came in and spoke to our group. But the one thing I was able to do is that I brought the leader of the Nation of Islam here in Columbus, Ohio, Donnell Muhammad, to come and speak to the upper school. And that was phenomenal. So Wellington allowed me to do that. Wow. Right? I mean, it was a different, he had his two bodyguards with him. He was talking about, Um, his experience. I mean, it was, and and people were like, to this day would still say that was the best, the best presentation we've ever had, right? Assembly. What time frame was that in? This was 95. I graduated from high school in 96. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, I was ahead of that. Right. And we also had, we had a professor, Linda James Myers, who was a, just an incredible professor at Ohio State who came to speak to us. So we had like four or five different speakers that you'll laugh. I took over the, the cafeteria was instrumental on what we ate. I mean, it was just, it was, <laughs> I was able to do that. I know you well enough to be not at all surprised by that. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really cool that I could do that. Yeah. Right? At Bexley, I don't think that would have been well received, but at right. Wellington, I could. And and, and everyone that I know that doesn't have the opportunity or, or to, to attend a private school, but my parents, their, their perspective was, well, we're paying these tuitions, right? We have more say-so and how things are going, right? Versus paying taxes. You know, I think we all know the value and the importance in our lives of having a group of people that you can just be you with, you know, errors, yes. no pretenses. You can, that's right. You can screw something up, which we all do. And you're, you're not judged forever. <laughs> right. We need those kind of places where we can stretch and grow and learn and crumble and fall. And there's just, you know, folks helping us get up and dust ourselves off and go on. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Got to have that. So right. off to Spelman. And I could not have imagined I wouldn't have begun to want to go to an all-girls college when I was mm-hmm. considering my colleges. Was there a mm-hmm. particular appeal to you of going to a historically black college? And I don't know the academic reputation of Spelman. I know a bit yeah. about it now. It's very, very well regarded. But was there any particular course of study that attracted you there, or just the environment? You know what it was? It was that I'd been in predominantly white environments my entire life. I had known a number of young women at the time that I really respected and admired that went to Spelman that came from similar situations to me. And some of my Jack and Jill, a lot of my Jack and Jill friends went to HBCUs for their undergrad after attending, you know, predominantly white, you know, K through 12 educations. So when we were younger, my mom and then my dad and my sister and my aunt, she was the first Black City Councilwoman, Les Wright and her husband of Columbus. We went to, we went to Atlanta. Wait, and we walked on campus. Yes. Yep. Ah. Here, sorry, this is yeah. a little Columbus inside baseball here. I, 
I came to town in 1996 when you were graduating high school, and uh-huh. in my years running the Science Museum, had a number of interactions with your aunt, except they didn't know she was your aunt. So, <laughs> Yes, yeah. So my Uncle Neil, he passed away a few years ago, but yeah, that's my mom's brother. Isn't that funny? So yes. So we, we went to Spelman. There was some conference we went to because she said, and we call her Polly. So my Aunt Polly, she was like, hey, come down with us. Let's go to Atlanta. And I walked on campus, and even though it was the summertime, there, were a lot of, there weren't a lot of students there. I was like, this is where I want to be. So wow. that was when I was like 12 years old. Um, and so senior, you know, in high school at Wellington, and I applied to Bryn Mawr, Wellesley. I really wanted to go to an all-women's college, Spelman, Hampton, just a bunch of different schools. And I, and I fortunately, I was able, I was admitted to all of them, but I decided on Spelman. Yeah. And when I look back on my life, it was the best decision I've ever made because we didn't think, have to think about race, right? I'm just there. I'm a student. Like, I remember the time my, my freshman year, Janetta B. Cole was a president. And I remember she said, look to your left and look to your right. Like everybody here has been the valedictorian. They are excellent. They've been the, the presence of their classes. Like this is who you're with. Like this yeah. is the cream of the crop. And all we could do was continue to rise and get better. And this is your peer group. That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, we admitted you, you belong here. Right. Look around. Yeah. That's right. Right. And that network and those relationships, like, it's incredible. Just the support that we still provide to each other. We always, I mean, so many people reach out to me for, could be a corporate opportunity, just a individual personal opportunity, but it's just the relationships are so strong. Um, And there wasn't, I didn't feel a lot of competition. It felt like let's all, like we can all get to the top. We could all do it. Like we all deserve it. Right. Yeah. Each one of you striving to be your best, but not knives out trying to take each other out. Correct. Yeah. Right. And then remember Morehouse College is right across the street. The boys are right there. <laughs> yeah, it's not like your social life social. <laughs> <laughs> I've right. been I've been to Spelman and Clark Atlanta to give a couple talks. Yes. That's a nice setup. Yes. <laughs> yes, right. And it's right there. So I didn't feel like I can't see boys if I wanted to. But I mean, of course there were rules. We had curfews. You know, I remember in my dorm we would say, Man on the hall, you know, if uh if Oh really? A, I thought that you know, died general, in the nineteen yes. sixties. No, we were still doing that, right? So people knew like don't you know, don't walk out of the bathroom after you took a shower. So it was, yeah. <laughs> it was great, but we, we really just looked out for each other and it's just, it's incredible just to, that environment was something that you just yeah. can't get back. And I always say to people, if you can, if you, if you have the opportunity to go to an HBC, it's just, it's life-changing. It is. Yeah. I grew up you know, before the era of visiting 16 colleges to decide which one you wanted to go to. Right. It was rare and we got to, managed to visit one, University of California, Santa Cruz. And I think I had the same, I mean, I'm, I'm an idiotic 17-year-old who doesn't really know anything about the world. But I remember having, I think, very much the same feeling you did just mm-hmm. physically when I got to campus. It was something about, this fits me. I belong here. Yeah. I mean, it was really helpful to know that because, you know, you go to college and you start hitting obstacles and roadblocks and hard times. And for me, you know, one of the anchors I held on to was that I... I knew I belonged there and I knew I had made the right choice for the right reason for me. And, you know, don't overinterpret this hard time you're at. This does not mean you don't belong here. It does not mean you can't do it. It just means this is a rough patch. That's right. And there's some bumps in the road, right? But it's how you bounce back from it. Yeah, always. Yeah. Did you go straight from Spelman into your retail career? I did. So the thing is, is at the Gap, they have a program. It's a retail management training program. Gap had recruited heavily at Spelman, you know, at Morehouse, at Howard, I think, and at Hampton. And I knew I had friends that had progressed through the program. I reached out to them. And then 
you know, I was hired and I moved out to San Francisco. So right after graduated from college. What was your career vision if you had one at that point? Was it you wanted to be in business or was it marketing? Was it fashion? Fashion. It, it was, was fashion. fashion. Yep. And so with the program, I mean, we rotated through merchandising, marketing, production, and planning, which is great. So it's all for it. And then in different brands. So I worked in marketing for Old Navy and planning for Banana Republic and production for Gap and then merchandising for Baby Gap. So we spent like nine weeks in each area and then we'd have to present a final project. Um, And the whole point then was uh, completion of the program was job placement. And so I I liked the production aspect, managing kind of what the designers intended and then, you know, delivering it into the stores. Make it real. Right. Make it real. That's that's the best way to say that. And, And I was working in Baby Gap. And then 9-11 happened and had a conversation with my parents. They're like, man, this is really, you're really far. Like, you know, you need to think about coming home. And, and so on my last day in the San Francisco office, I interviewed with a woman named Sarah for the Miami office. So at the time, Gap had, it was the GIS of the Americas, so the Gap International Sourcing Office. So there were offices oh. in India, London, all over the place. And we had one in the Americas, which happened to be in Miami, Florida. So me as a 22-year-old, I'm like, whoa, I can live in Miami. So anyway, interviewed for the job, moved back home. And a few weeks later, I flew out to Miami and I went through the other interview process and I was hired. So I moved there in 2001, no, 2002. So in January of 2002 and lived there for three years. But the thing is, I'll tell you, working in that position initially, I was working as an associate production manager, which was fine, or assistant production manager, then was associate and the manager. But the person I worked for was a male chauvinist. He was just, you know, different background, just kind of, just kind of had a machismo attitude. And I was just making copies and doing stuff, but I never complained about it. This is such an important point, but I just did whatever he asked me to do, did a good job. And we ended up having layoffs in the office. He was laid off, right? And I was promoted to the denim team, which was phenomenal because the denim team is really what drove our office. office. We're making millions of jeans and and jean jackets. And yeah, exactly. But the thing is, is that I didn't complain about it. Right. I just, I remember talking to my mom she's like, just whatever. It's not a big deal. Just do what you have to do. And so the woman who hired me in Miami, she saw that it was like, man, Elizabeth, I didn't have an attitude. I didn't complain, any of that stuff. Well, you're just keeping on, keeping on. That's what you have to do. Yeah. And look, she must have had the number on the guy you were working for. So she... Of course. Yeah. Right. So she knew, but I didn't say anything about it. Yeah. It's just like, you have to, as my mom would always say, like, keep your own counsel, right? And and just, it'll all work out the way it's supposed to. Just work hard. One of the guys I worked with at NASA, he had a really fun triad of, you know, what do you do when you're up against somebody like that, obnoxious or whatever, whatever they are? Yes. He says, There's only three ways to react. Only three ways to react. You outplay them, you outclass them, or you outlaugh them. I love that. Isn't that brilliant? Yes. No, it is. I love that. I'll never forget that. Different times, it's just what you did. You know, show the performance, and it'll come through. And other times, it's right. just you know, don't be the crappy, tacky person there being. Let your character show through. And other times, it's just turn it all into a joke and turn the joke back on them. A hundred percent right. Yeah. And so, just because of that behavior. Then when I, I knew that if I wanted to kind of advance my career in retail, I needed to either move to New York or to California because Miami, there weren't a lot of fashion opportunities, right? Perry Ellis was there. But it is more the production hub than the fashion hub, right? Correct. Because of all the supply chain stuff. 
That's exactly right. And and so the thing is, at the time, I mean, I was managing suppliers in Central, South, and North America, right? I was a part of their premium denim line that Banana Republic launched. And I was going out to LA because at the time we worked with a number of wash houses there. So the experience and the exposure was just phenomenal. So Sarah, the one who hired me from Miami, she had moved up to New York and she was running production for these boutique brands. And I reached out to her and she was like, hey, little birdie told me you're looking for something. And it worked out. I ended up moving up to New Jersey, living in New York, running the production of Bono, the head singer of U2's line called Eden. And again, it's just relationships and impressions and how you interact with people and how you handle yourself, right? So I did that for about a year. My business partners were all over the world. Uh, so I was like glued to my Blackberry, dating myself, right? At the <laughs> yeah, time. Fossil. Right, right. <laughs> and it was such a great experience. I learned so much. So no one on this podcast is going to forgive me if I don't ask if you ever got to meet Bono. No, but I met his wife because at the time he was on the North American tour. So uh, he was traveling all over the place. But Allie would come in to the office from Ireland and just to see what was happening. Because at the time, Sarah had her first baby. So she was on maternity leave. So I was there like, okay. So, but I'll tell you when people met me, they're like, you're the one who's running it. You're so young. And wait a minute. So it was interesting. Like yeah. they kind of had an aha moment, right? When they, when they met me, because they're like, you're doing all this stuff. But yeah, so it was great. Learned a ton really challenged myself, went to New Delhi, I think five times, spent some time in Tunisia, same Portugal and Peru, and really established these amazing relationships. And the garments were then delivered to like Bergdorf's, Neiman Marcus, high-end boutiques. So smaller lines of things, a number of specialty items, but it was great because I came from the mega gap to this fashion house. And there were other brands that were there, but it was such a great experience. So you know, my mom said to my sister and I, this was in 2005 from the self company, your dad and I were going to travel. Wait now, wait now. We got we to gotta look back a little bit. Yes. Last time we met your mom, she was involved in the community and helping your dad build his practice. Oh, yes, yes. Wait. And now she's talking about selling a business. Which oh, shoot. I forgot. I, I, I right. think she, if I have the dates right, she bought it around the time you graduated high school. That's exactly right. She did. And first things first, because I've never had a chance to ask you this. I would say, colloquially, you run a travel agency, but you call it Uniglobe Travel Designers. So <laughs> what exactly does travel designer mean? Right. Well, a couple of things. We, we've kind of changed. So we're a travel management company now. What does that mean? Gone are the days of agents. We have consultants, right? And so we are advocating for our travelers with our airline, hotel, car rental partners, there's a lot of things that we have access to that the general public doesn't. We help organizations look at their travel policies. So those are the rules that kind of like dictate how members of an organization or the road warriors will, will travel. Right. So that's what we do. So we're part of a franchise, but independently owned. I own two locations. I'm in Columbus, Ohio today, and then we have an office outside of Atlanta. And so Designers was a part of our name from the original owner. So we've just kept it, right? So every Uniglobe has a distinct ending to it. It could be Uniglobe Travel Partners, Uniglobe Accent Travel. It just, yeah. Oh, it's just, got it. So that's okay. A, yes. Yeah. But I mean, you know, on the designer side though, too, like when we are helping people with their leisure travel, we really are, it's it's really a design. Like we can, we, we build a lot of FITs, free independent travel. So that's when we are building every component from the flights to if you need to take a, a boat or a yacht or car service or, you know, going to excursions. So we design every, if you need restaurant reservations or recommendations, all of okay. those different things, we will design the entire itinerary. It's pretty fitting. It's a concierge kind of service of putting together, at least for the independent traveler, putting together 
what was the experience you wanted. And then exactly. basically you're brokering and negotiating through the stable of partners and companies that you know. Exactly. So what got your mom into that business? We had utilized it for our spring and summer travel. And the original owner said, hey, Elsie, you use this business a lot. Why don't you become my partner? She did. And then she bought them out because she realized they had different thought processes about how to run business. <laughs> and then and then my dad sold his practice and became our silent partner, never worked in the business, of course. He was doing volunteer work like at the VA hospital. And she just grew. So the first large account she landed was Ohio State. So the Ohio State University, as we call it here. The reason that opportunity kind of happened is because there was another black corporate travel management company here who, and they were servicing Ohio State and there was some, something happened. So the woman called my mom and said, hey, Elsie, there's this opportunity. They have a commitment to working with diverse suppliers and to get funding. They had to show that spend. And she, like my mom, and I'm so much like her, she's like, okay. Now people thought she was crazy to even do that, right? It's massive. How are you going to do that? Like, yeah, and she well, just, it's got all the state regulations. And yes. They're not the uncumbersome client. <laughs> at all, right? And all these, you know, pieces and parts in the med center and athletics and study abroad and the administration, what does the president need? I mean, all that kind of stuff. Just by customer service, she grew and had the entire account for many years. It was just, it was phenomenal. But the thing is, like, if I think back also, when I think about my childhood, like my father would give his phone number to all of his patients. So they would call on holidays, on weekends. And if something happened, he would do that. So my mom does that. I do that because we really care. I don't care what size of client you are, but you know, if you need something, you can reach out to me and we'll take care of it. And so just seeing that, like I, that was just kind of ingrained yeah. in me. Now, you know, people are weird with their the phones. They don't do. want people to have information. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. it, and it's rare, right? Because people don't do that. <laughs> yeah, hardly anymore. Right. So you did your year with Bono and then what was the draw to come back? Did your mom want to exit the business or just good time to come home? She wanted to exit the business. Okay. And so my sister, my sister was thinking about being an attorney. She would work at the DOJ in DC and she was like, I don't think I want to go to law school. So we had a like a conference call and I said, you know what? We're both coming home. And so Jacqueline went home in the like the fall of 05. And I moved back in February of 06. And here's the thing. A lot of people thought I was crazy. They were like, I can't believe you don't want to stay and, and do this. Well, that's that standard you know, bias, right? I mean, Columbus. I mean, you're going... Right. Cowtown. <laughs> Ohio's where you leave. It's not where you go back to, right? I got right. that. I moved out here with no roots in Columbus. I got that mm-hmm. from everybody. My friends in Washington, New York, California was, you're going, where? I thought people right. leave there to come here. Right. And also retail is exhausting. And, and there were times that I'm like, what are we doing? This isn't brain surgery here. Not that it isn't important, but the stress level and the anxiety and how angry people would get. I'm like, well, I mean, there's a problem with the delivery there. The button is missing. It just, it's just, yeah. just like, what am I doing? So we, <laughs> we both moved home and we're trying to figure out the business. And I mean, my mom, I'll just tell you this. I mean, she fired us like a number of times. It was hilarious because she's like, get it together. Because her standard of how like we needed to operate. I mean, so we, we had uh, had a lot to learn, but I was so pleased that I followed my gut. And I just was like, you know, what? I'm going to get back to Columbus. I'll figure this out because my father had a massive stroke that May. The day before he went to a doctor's appointment, and I think I dropped him off. My sister picked him up. He was fine. He would just always go to the doctor to make sure he was okay. A lot of doctors do that. The next day, he had a stroke. 
you know, and then we, we were at Mount Carmel East here in Columbus and we were like, save his life. And he went through, I don't know, seven, eight hour brain surgery. And then he hemorrhaged that night. And then, oh, you know, he was on life support and we were not going to have this man living just for us. Right. Which was a huge lesson to learn at 25 years old. I'm like, what, how am I losing my father? But we, it wasn't about me. Right. It was 77 yeah. years old. He had lived a, a full life things. And it was rare because typically strokes don't happen, not normally for someone that age, right? So it was just all these, all yeah. these things that happen. But thank God I moved home when I did, because I had those months where we would hang out and have family dinners. And I never regret that. And yeah, so many absolutely. people thought I was crazy for leaving, but you always have to follow your gut. And thank God. Yeah. Yeah. All the travel you did for your retail work, how has that been an asset or a help to starting up and getting in the business? Yeah, because I knew what I didn't like and what I did like, right? And at the time for the smaller, for Eden, we didn't have a travel company. So I would tell people, use use my family's business because we're just going online and buying stuff. What if something goes wrong? So I really understood what it meant to be a business traveler, what you need, how uncomfortable. I mean, I had to change hotels and, you know, just I understand it. And you've got to have a reliable person. If something's happening and it's 24-7 or you're 17 hours ahead, you've got to have someone you can call which was great for me. We actually use Uniglobe and, and then I would just use it myself because I'm like, I need, I'm going to India. I need to have a reliable source. I need to have a driver picking me up with my name on a sign. So I really understand what business travel is. And that was great because I could bring that perspective and say to my team at the time, like, hey, no, we, we, like it's frustrating to be out there. To You're getting on a plane every Sunday and coming back every Thursday. It's Yeah, it can it's get not, just, you may think it's glamorous, but it gets but real, real fast. It does. <laughs> It does. And so, you know, and with that, that's helped just even looking at different technologies that we need to bring into the office, different experts and different, it's just been, it was, it was great because I really, I was in the corporate side of my business in their shoes. And then on the leisure side, the one thing that my sister and I did, which was great, is that we had to learn how to book leisure travel. So it was helpful, right? Because then with that, I could understand, well, how, when I'm looking to hire people, how do I want them to handle our clientele, right? I want them to provide this VIP experience. Don't sell from your own pocket. I mean, all these different things. And it was so helpful. And then also, I mean, we established really great relationships with our supplier partners. And I mean, Jacqueline and I, and that's my sister, we were doing booking all kinds of stuff. I remember one of our first big trips that we did together was like 200 people, a destination wedding. One of our classmates from Spelman came to us and it was incredible. I'm like, wow. You like, booked really all 200 people? Yes, we did. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Yeah. And it was great. And we attended the trip. We were there and just think if anything went wrong, you know, we, we organized, just talked to all the people, made, making sure that they received all the benefits because with a group that large, of course you received, you know, credits and room credits and resort credits and things of that nature. But it was great because then we knew, okay, this is how you need to be organized. And this is how we handle things. And we have this whole process. We're sending documents out. It's because I, I personally like to have something in my hand when I'm traveling. So I can just like look at it. Oftentimes you need to present it. You know, if your phone dies, you need to have something. So we just, we came up with this entire process that has been, it's been great because a lot of people don't do it. We've been doing it for a while, even before the pandemic. And I mentioned that because a lot of people, they really want that care. They want to be handled with care when they're traveling. Traveling will never return to the way it was pre-COVID. It just will not. I mean, the, the pandemic obviously significantly impacted the world. And I say to people like, yeah, the hospitality industry is not immune to having issues with pilots, flight attendants, 
hotel representatives, car rental people. I mean, come on. It's like, so I say to people all the time, you go in your neighborhood, I'm still seeing help wanted signs, hiring Mm -hmm. here, 20 bucks an hour, everywhere. In the hospitality industry and hotels, airlines, airports, that's all affected. Yeah. And so I would say like, be kind, just, just relax and be nice because everybody's still trying to figure this out. Yeah. Since the pandemic, I don't don't have a fair bit of traveling. I mm-hmm. can't think of any hotel I've stayed in, certainly in the United States, that just by default offers daily maid service. Right. Most of them are, right. you know, they're they're asking you if you want. It's not. I haven't gotten anywhere that it's an add-on, but they're asking you if you want it. If you want it, it's maybe every other day, and it's just it's mainly a staffing and cost management question. Right. You're right. You know, a couple of weeks ago. My sister and I, we went to Amsterdam. So she works for a, a company called All Hold Delays and their headquarters is there in Amsterdam. So when I landed though, you know, there were a number of planes that were landing at the same time. And there was just a just backlog, like this bottleneck of people. I couldn't understand what was happening. There were only three people trying to... Trying to clear 600 passengers. That's right. Passport <laughs> control, right? So I'm thinking, but I was calm because I'm like, you just have to roll with it. I'm in Amsterdam. Like you've got to roll with the rules of the country, the laws of the land. Right. And so I took a cab the next day and I asked the cab driver, I said, look, I mean, I think one thing people are not realizing is that a lot of people died because of COVID. No one's talking, but it's true. Right. And so that's one thing that that's one reason we have a workforce shortage. And he said, yeah. And the other thing is that if there are people that have long COVID, people may have had to quit their jobs to take care of, right. Their relatives. Yeah. Yep. But then also, in, in a number of industries, like a number of people were laid off from the airport in Amsterdam and they're not going back to work because they're pissed off. Yep. It's layered and it's complex, right? Yep. And it's not going to change. And I just, it's never going to be the way it was before. And it's, that's okay. But it's like reminding people we have to, I have to remind people of this all the time. Yeah. Constantly, Kathy, all the time. It's a new normal and you need to adjust your thinking about it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Throwing a tantrum at the person in the airport is not going to, it's not going to change. No. Yeah. And even think about this, even when you land, right? I mean, there are plenty of times I've landed here in Columbus, you know, John Glenn is short staffed as well. And they're trying to like, and you may sit on the tarmac for a while, right? Yep. Hey, because they have to bring people in to, to the m- other marshal people. marshal the airplane. There yep. you go. Part, exactly. It's crazy how that's factoring through so many things. I mean, the, the the way they handle the baggage belt stuff now. It can take an amazing amount of time to get your bag from the airplane <laughs> right. to the baggage belt because they're probably working six flights. You know, That's right. At the same time. Yeah. Two guys mm-hmm. driving the baggage train for six flights kind of thing. Exactly. So you've something like tripled the volume of the business since you took over. I have. What mixture was that of more big business clients and just really building out the leisure travel? So... Our business is 80% corporate, 20% leisure. And one thing that I love to do is that if I bid on an account and I don't win it, I want to understand why. And so I mentioned this because one of the game changers for me was that I had bid on an account for, for a large health system here, didn't win it. And I had a conversation with the VP of supply chain. You know, it was really, it was a hard day. I had a really just tough day and having the conversation. He was kind of like, nah, nah, you know, giving me like really pushing me. But I was like, I just said, hey, this is what we do. And I, I'd love to get feedback and we'd love to compete the next time. And what can we do better? Because you can always get better and it's, it's yeah. great to learn and, and to be vulnerable. And so this man said to me, do you want to grow your business? And I said, I do. And he said, write this down. So he gave me a little post-it 
I wrote this woman's name. So down. that little pink post-it that you just showed me? Not this one, but he gave okay. me something like this, right? Okay. I should, I should have framed it. And he said, um, you know what you need to do? He said, go ahead and uh, email this woman when you get back to your office and tell her I recommended you. He probably didn't think I would do it. So I emailed this woman at Vizient. Vizient is a multi-billion dollar healthcare organization. I email her and they have a huge commitment to supplier diversity. And within six months, I had a contract with Vizient. And so that was really the game changer for my business. We have clients in 37 states and counting. People are selling my contract all across the U.S. We received the Vizient contract. I didn't even understand how massive it was at the time, right? Because I'm like, okay, like, what does that mean? And because I'm an approved supplier, it means anyone can work with me. I don't have to yeah. go out for bid. I have not heard of that company before. What, what do they do again? So it's healthcare. So it's called Vizient. So we have a number of healthcare systems and hospitals across the country okay. that we service. But then in addition to that, Vizient has like, there's ProVista, there's, they're all, there's, it's so complex. Other brands massive. under that umbrella. Yes. And other opportunities, right? Yeah. So it, it's, so like, for example, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking to Shepherd Pratt, which is, you know, the largest behavioral health hospital. I mean, because of Vizient, like, we, so that's the kind of stuff that happens, which is, so that's how we've grown so much. So growing it organically from that first- that's it. Yeah. That's it. Okay. And then I got a contract with another GPO, which is a group purchasing organization. I met these people because I went to Vegas for a Vizient conference and just hit it off with them. We bid on travel and we've grown tremendously in the K through 12 municipality university space. Wow. But from that conversation, from me having the courage to just- From that one sticky note. One thing, you just, you never know, yeah. right? It, it was It was incredible. So you told us about the 200-person Spellman wedding. I'm, I'm curious, what's your other favorite story of the really out-there leisure travel itinerary you put together? I'm not talking about bridezilla kind of stories, but maybe I am. <laughs> well, one, one story I'll tell is a, a really close friend of mine. Um, when he and his wife had their five-year anniversary, I planned their trip. And they went to Europe. They were in Sweden and London. In Paris, and they went to Saint Tropez, and just booking yachts and you know once in a lifetime experiences. That was it was phenomenal, and that's probably that's one of my one of my favorite stories to tell because I knew if I could book that, and he was a former NBA player, and we've wow. been friends for a really long time. And I mean, they said that was a trip of their lifetime. And you probably didn't get to go on that trip. No, that was for that. Right. <laughs> now, I'll have to say, and Kathy, you know this, but I, uh, about four or well, really five years ago, I started a cruise called the President's Cruise. So I pick an itinerary and I um, just invite people, friends, people that I know to join me. And that's been amazing because I've seen so many places in the world. Of course, it's on a smaller ship, which I know you love as well. It's just easy, right, to navigate, to see the world. Yeah. But those trips have been meaningful for me as well. And when I hear people talking about them so much and super excited about it, because you're just, it's these once in a lifetime experiences. And, you know, it's something that I, I love doing that. I really do. It's just, it's, we, you know, planning just those different experiences and exposure and it's this access. It's just travel is just, and, and, I'm, and luckily, I mean, I've been traveling since I was a little girl. I've always loved it. So I love what I do. Right. And yeah. I love and I love helping people think of different things and having different experiences and those memories that will last a lifetime. We've seen this even before the pandemic, but of course, even is more elevated now. But people are looking at experiences and multi-generational travel. 
right. instead of buying these items. It's like, no, let's do this. Let's go together. Let's as have a group. an experience together. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Share stories. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So uh, one other thing I was curious about uh, is what's the demographic, you know, racial and economic diversity of your leisure travel clients? Wow. That's a good question. I mean, I think it's, it's pretty diverse. I mean, it yeah. really is. I mean, I've got, you know, a number of women business owners, of course, that I know, and not just here in Columbus, but just nationally that will, you know, they're like, Hey, look, I don't have time. And, and, and really what's happening is people just want to go to the expert. So it's just taken care of because a lot of destination management companies have closed. There are challenges with the airlines. Like it's just all these different things and a number of hotels closed. So people are just seeing the value in that. So, but my client base is really diverse. And I really like that. I mean, seriously, yeah. but on the corporate side, I'll tell you, and this is, this might, you might find this interesting, but probably not because, because <laughs> I'm sure you're going to already know this. I mean, I have clients here in Columbus, but most of my clients are out of the state, corporate and leisure too. But on the corporate side, they love that I'm certified as a women and minority owned business. That is important. Now here in Ohio, eh, I mean, not, I'll just be honest, not so much, right? There's some organizations that are, but my growth has happened outside of here. And when I talk to, you know, a number of women business owners and minority business owners here, that's the same story I hear from them too. They're like, yeah, I mean, it's like Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, one of my clients. And that was really, when I knew when we secured that account, I was like, we can do anybody's trap. It doesn't matter where we are. Right. And yeah. that was really, and that was from busy. so that was one thing that it just kind of was like, and I, I remember I called my mom, I said, mom, we got this. And she's like, what? Said, so, yeah, we got it. And and I knew that it would just, we can handle West Coast clients. We can, so of course, now with our team, we have people that are on the West Coast, different time zones, so we can service everyone regardless of where they are. I find that interesting, but I don't see it as a barrier. I just see it as an opportunity, right? And and I want to work with people that want to work with me. Yeah. <laughs> and don't just ask me. And I definitely makes all the difference in the world. In a bit. Yeah. It does, where it's reciprocal, right? I'm not perfect, and I will say that, but we will do a good job. We do care about our clients. We will go above and beyond. We never say no. And I will not participate in bids where they just want to check a box and say they had a black supplier when they had no even intention on giving me a chance, right? Yep. And so for me, it's it's always so, I don't know, rewarding and uplifting when, because at the end of the conversation, if we're not on Zoom, someone may say, and even when I have been on Zoom before, I remember talking to one client we recently uh, landed, you're black? I was like, yes. <laughs> you know, it was just one of those things which was hilarious, but they, it was important to them to have that certification, right? So it's, it's, it's so funny to me because oftentimes that is like at the end of the conversation, if, if you can't see me, then they'll ask, well, one last question. Um, do you have any certifications? And I was like, yeah, I'm a black woman. I'm certified. They're like, what? That's amazing. So I find that a lot out of the state. Well, that's a little bit of what I was trying to get at with that question because I think to a lot of people, you know, the check the box minority business thing is it is seen as check the box and consciously or subconsciously, it is presumed to mean settle for not quite as good a service in order to you do the slightly better social thing. And so I was kind of obliquely trying to get at just what you touched on because you have the skin color you have, but that mm -hmm. has no bearing on the caliber of business you're running. I know that from my own experience. And now People for eons have thought, well, I run a white business, but there's no reason I can't service black and Hispanic and you know, just as well. So it's presumed it could go right. that way without any question. But suddenly now it's the other way around. It's like, wait, could you? But I'm white. Could you help me? Would you really want to help me? It's just yes. that odd. The odd wrinkles is still in interracial relationships and presumptions. It is. And 
but the thing is, is like, there's so many people and corporate clients that are like, that give me an opportunity. I'm always like, just give me, let me compete. And yeah, I mean, honestly, we've won business from our competitors, a lot of them around recently because their customer service sucks because they're switching people around and they don't have the same account manager and they're telling their client to go negotiate hotel discounts. Who does that, right? <laughs> you go to go yourself, find your, your rep at, for National Enterprise. No, we do that. So Yeah. So how stable is your team? I mean, that stability of the members of a team is a big factor in that kind of service. It's stable now. I will tell you, like, of course, during the pandemic, I mean, our business was down 90%. I did keep most of my employees on just because that was easier for me. I couldn't one week you're part-time and next week collect an employee. I just didn't have the capacity to do that. And in the travel space, there were some people that really got burnt out, right? And decided to leave it. So I had some people that had worked for me for a number of years and then just said, ah, you know, I, I don't want to do this anymore and completely left the profession. So we, we, of course we experienced that, but I knew that there were travel consultant companies in the market where they could hire talent for me and they would do this, the, the screening on our reservation system. So I've spent a lot of money with that, but I have eight players. So my team, and the other thing too, is that a number of companies closed down and they shut their doors and furloughed these people and people still want to work in the industry, right? So I'm finding there are a number of people that just want, they want to land someplace. And when they see like that, I continue, I didn't get stagnant. I didn't get paralyzed. I think a lot of, in any industry, but especially in travel, people just were paralyzed. They were frozen. They didn't know what to do. And I just kept going. We would have sessions with our corporate travelers to explain what it was like to navigate the airport and what would your hotel experience look like and don't expect to even get your room clean because at that time when travel was trying to yeah. reopen, yeah. those were just different things to consider. Getting a rental car was a nightmare. Rental car companies sold off more than half their fleet to be profitable. So that's going to be tough. Just sharing that, we just kept going and kept sharing the knowledge. And I didn't get discouraged because I knew things would change. And I knew, and, I, and what I wanted to, when the way we positioned ourselves is that when you're ready to travel, you're going to call us. We had different webinars. We had like join us from a cocktail, learn about Paul's up in Montana, learn about, you know, Italy. There are these amazing villas. So we just kept doing that. And so many people, Kathy said to me, like, you, you're, you're just so positive. I was like, but I don't have anything else and another way to be. Yeah. What's the other option? Yeah. <laughs> what made me cry? What made me cry in a corner? Like yeah. my people that I was responsible for, right? So yeah. So I mean, our team, it's the best team I've ever had. I mean, these people are just they're A players, they're efficient. I'm not and I'm not a micromanager, but even now I'm like, like this week I'm so calm. It's right before a holiday. And I'm like, am I missing something? No, it's about time. This is what I've been working for. Yeah. Right. To have people that are that are, are really just providing excellent service and that they understand it and our mottos and they believe in it. And it's about, you know, reciprocity. Like I will work my butt off and then they work their butt off for me. It's a, it's, it's just, it's give and take. Right. And we're, we're, we're all working together. So it's great. I, I really love the people that work with me. I do. And that's helpful. And I'll tell you my, uh, one of my old therapists, she used to say to me, when you're hiring people, you need to make sure you want to have a meal with them because if you don't, you don't need to hire them. And so I always think about that when I'm talking to people like, do I like you? I mean, really and truly, because I've got to like them. Well, you're going to spend a lot of time together. Yeah. Right. But I need to make sure, like, are they funny? Can they kind of roll with situations? Can you ebb and flow? You've got to be able to, because in this business and in life, you've got to be able to adjust. Right. And I know, you know, the big word is pivot, um, but you've got to, you've got to just be able to understand everything is not rigid. 
if if you if you have no flexibility, it's just it's going to be difficult to succeed, right? Yeah. I mean, it just is. I think I've maybe gotten out of you all the nuggets <laughs> that I usually fish for with the this final question I'm going to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway. It, mm-hmm. When you go to Spelman or to Jack and Jill groups and you're talking to young young folks, and you speak at other places that are not just black social groups or black colleges. Mm-hmm. What are the couple, three things that you focus on encouraging the 20-year-old who's just who you were when you were 20 years old, still feeling your way forward a little bit, but what principles and life lessons you share with them? First impressions are everything. Hmm. Response time is key. And be selfless. And and I always say that because I always say to people, because I meet entrepreneurs that are in all these different stages of their careers, right? And maybe it's a, it could be, Maybe they're a solopreneur or they really want this big account. But this is what I tell people all the time. Talk to people, learn about their story. Don't ask for anything. Just take those nuggets, take that information, have a you know, 30, 45 minute coffee, take someone to lunch, relationships, but you have to be selfless. Like I, and I talk to so many people and I don't want anything. I just want to learn because there's so much you can absorb and learn from people, from experience sharing selfless and being genuine. So it's kind of like 3.5, right? It just makes it a huge difference. There are so many times that things would just come back around from a coffee I may have had with somebody two or three years ago. And I always tell people like, come from a selfless place, learn, like take the chance. People are most, most of the time people are willing to talk to you, especially now with Zoom, right? I can do 30 minutes on my calendar, but I always say that you've got to be selfless. It can't be about what's in it for me. It's just got to be like, let me absorb this. And I think if more people, like young people, they're looking like, I want to get on TikTok. I mean, it's not that easy to do that, but relationships, you're going to have yeah. to have those, those tangible, and you got to be selfless because otherwise, if, I, if I'm calling people up about what I want, it's never going to happen, yeah. right? I hear a thread also of you know, authentic and vulnerable in, yes. in what you're saying, like a real people-to-people connection. That's what you have to be. Like genuinely interested, not just, talk, yes. not just talking at you so I get something back. Right. And it was, it was funny. I was interviewing someone. She lives in Texas yesterday. We need someone in our accounting system. And I told her and she was laughing. I said, but this person, I'm always the same. Like what you see is what you get. There's no, like, I'm not walking around my office and screaming at people, cussing them out. No. I mean, of course there are moments you get angry, but it's just, that's not how I operate. I'm very upfront and direct and genuine. And I am not changing or like a chameleon, right? It's like, this is, and, and Kathy, you and I have spent time together. This is who I am. It doesn't change. Yep. And I think that's important too, being comfortable in who you are and being that person and being that. Yeah. So all the places you have been and, and all the places you send people, mm-hmm. is there such a thing as a bucket list for Elizabeth McCormick? Yes. I really want to go to Singapore, Singapore, Japan. Okay. I've been to Peru, but I really want to go to South America. And then when you're talking about that Scotland, Ireland region, I haven't been to Japan. I haven't been to Singapore, but I love traveling. I've been to Tunisia and then I've been to South Africa, of course, in Johannesburg and Cape Town, which Cape Town is just, I think they're both phenomenal cities, but both different. How many passports have you worked through? (laughs) Oh, You must have a drawer full of expired filled passports. I do. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I love traveling as do you, right? I mean, it's, Something about being in an environment and you learn so much about yourself when you're traveling. You learn survival, right? You learn how to like, okay, let me figuring things out. It's just and flexibility, adaptability. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for spending time with us uh, with me today. And you've kind of 
your last talk about being authentic and, and learning from other people's life stories, I couldn't have, I did not coach you to give that anthem to this podcast, but that's exactly the motive of this oh, podcast. Wow. So thank okay. you for describing it uh, even better than we describe it in the podcast, <laughs> I think. And I think you and I got to plan something and go somewhere together. So I will look forward to that. Definitely we do. All right. I love that. Elizabeth Bond McCormick, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Kathy. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com.